Good morning. <clears throat> I have questions here that were already submitted yesterday, so I'll start to read them for Ajahn Buddhadasa. <clears throat> if, as we go, you would like to, if you have more questions, you can e either give them to me or at appropriate time, read them yourself in the microphone. But if you read your question, please give it to me in writing afterwards so that I can translate it. Meaning, if you have a question, please write it down in advance. <clears throat> the first question is, do you think it is wise to introduce our friends or family members who have such strong problems that they need years of psychotherapy to come back to a normal, what means peaceful life, to the Buddhism, to meditation, or to both? Could that help far away from a Buddhist country? Which way of doing this would be best? Should we give them books about Buddhism or meditation? Should we discuss what we learned about? Should we send them to Thailand? Or what should we do? First, you should understand that one should study Dhamma and understand Dhamma in order to prevent such kind, such unfortunate situations, like when people have big psychological problems. Um, people ought to study Dhamma first in order to not get into such things. But when people have already gotten themselves into this kind of trouble, then it's much more difficult to deal with. And it's very, one can't expect any quick or immediate results. When people already have psychological problems, heavy ones, then we just deal with the circumstances with the situation as it goes. So one should first look at it in this way. The person who already has nervous problems or mental illness isn't able to understand the Dhamma. They may sit and listen to Dhamma talks, but they don't really understand what is being said. They can't understand. The person who is able to help them must be very skillful, very clever, have a lot of experience to know how and be able to help them. First, one must talk to them until they can understand and accept for themselves that the reason they're in the situation they're in is because they don't know anything about Dhamma. First, they must, ex they must realize what pro the problem they have and admit it, and then recognize that the reason it happened is because they don't know anything about Dhamma. If we can get this across to them, then they might start to get interested in Dhamma, and then we will have some ability to, to communicate with them, at least a little bit, and we can work from there. So we must be able to 
get across to them that Dhamma can help them. If we can get this idea across enough that they will listen, then we we teach them appropriate understanding of Dhamma until they can follow along and then take what we have told them about and think accordingly, to think in lines with the Dhamma that we are giving to them. And then so that they can start to develop some mindfulness, some awareness, so they can kind of start to pull their mind together to overcome the tremendous dispersion and distraction, restlessness of their mind or their anxiety or the the tension and nervousness, whatever it is. If they can start to think in terms of Dhamma correctly so they can start to pull their mind together be and be mindful. As far as we can see, um, books won't do any good. Books aren't nearly as good as talking with someone. To talk with them directly, maybe give them some very simple advice about real basic approaches to meditation. And then take it step by step from there. This has some potential. So we encourage them, support them, and kind of lead them along until there is some samadhi, their minds stabilize a bit. And then when they have some samadhi, then we can develop it further, help them further from there. Now, books are of some use before people have these problems or when they're about or starting to have these problems, then books can still be of use. Um, it appears that no one so far has written a book specifically for people who are, are getting sick in this particular way. We should, we study the sick individual a great deal until we know the circumstances and the characteristics of the illness. We understand where it comes from. We see how it affects the person. We need to study this person very carefully to learn these things. Sometimes we make ourselves ill in the same way. We kind of fake it like we have the same problem so that we can speak with them more easily. So that's all we can say on this subject. Next question, do good and get good, do bad, get bad. But some people do bad things and get good. Please advise on this. This business of do good, get good, do bad, get bad, is still rather immature. It's kind of on a level for people who aren't so intelligent. So one ought to be careful. This level of understanding isn't quite yet Buddhism. Um, it's not up to the mark of Buddhism. For it to be Buddhism, 
it should say to be above and beyond good and evil. This level of understanding is very ordinary. It's for people who haven't developed very far spiritually. It's a kind of beginner's level. It's a level of understanding that was taught before Buddhism. And so it's, it's not actually Buddhism, and one ought to understand it in this way. Um, now, the confusion in this question is due to the fact that the person isn't clear about what is meant by good and what is meant by bad. They've mixed up and confused the mental aspects of good and evil with the physical aspects of good and evil. And they're attaching, attaching to certain narrow meanings of the words. For example, somebody does something good mentally, but gets something bad materially. This is what the person is confusing. Mental goodness, but receiving bad material results. Or someone who materially say how they deal with the world is quite bad, but accidentally or coincidentally they get some happy mental results. This is what people think is to do bad and get good. Notice there's a lot of confusion here about what is good and what is bad. Um, the, so one has to straighten out this to see, to understand the words good and bad carefully and not to just attach to common everyday or narrow understandings of these words. If we understand these teachings merely with attachment, with narrow old opinions, then it will only lead to confusion. When looking for the causes of what's happening now, the good or bad results we're experiencing now, don't be hoping too much to find causes in previous lives. Instead, look at it in terms of itapa jayata, the flow of causes and conditions in this life. That will have much better chance of us staying clear and not getting confused as the questioner seems to have done. How would Buddhism approach the problem of addiction, whether it be alcohol, drugs, food, or other forms such as gambling? This question of addiction is something that was um, warned against and taught against way before Buddhism happened. Um, this is a very low level of morality or ethics. So, first of all, understand that with the question of addiction here, we're dealing on a very low or spiritually immature level. And old forms of religion that existed before Buddhism taught against this. When Buddhism appeared, it accepted the the reality and truth of that as a kind of preliminary level of understanding. 
So, not, or avoiding addictions, not being addicted to things like alcohol, drugs, gambling, and other low forms of behavior like that, is just a very basic preliminary morality necessary for any further spiritual development. And so its place in Buddhism is kind of a prerequisite. Um, if one isn't able to overcome such low forms of behavior, then one won't be able to go any further into things such as meditation and higher understanding. Um, the problem of addiction was not very important in the old days. It only became a serious problem in later times. I asked him what he meant by that and he said, let's say since material development became advanced, only once human beings became very skillful and clever at inventing all kinds of new things to get drunk on, to get intoxicated on. This is what, it's only after that that the problem of addiction has become serious. Previously it wasn't much of a problem. Do you think traveling around the world is just an escape from your responsibility for the society you're involved with? The words traveling around the world have many meanings. So one has to ask what meaning is meant by these words. One can travel around the world in order to study, to genuinely study things of value and importance. Or one can travel around the world in order to help people in other countries and other societies. Or one can travel merely for pleasure, for fun, for one's personal enjoyment. If, if one is traveling in a way that is genuinely for one's own benefit or for the benefit of others, then we must say that that is correct. But if one is only traveling for pleasure, to have fun, to see strange things or whatever, then that doesn't seem worthwhile to us. It doesn't seem very correct. Um, it seems to be a bit irresponsible. It's kind of to take advantage of the world or of others to travel merely for one's own enjoyment and pleasure. But if one travels for the sake of genuine learning or to help others, then no one isn't taking advantage of anyone. In fact, if one is able to really be of help in other countries, then that's of enormous benefit for the world. And that's, that's you can't call that irresponsibility, that's to be really responsible. That's a very high level of responsibility to be able to help in other cultures and countries. Merely traveling for fun, then that doesn't seem worthwhile to us. It seems rather irresponsible. Nowadays, there's a lot of technology which can help 
um, conserve resources. There are books, there are videos, there's lots of forms of communication and information exchange, which has made the world much smaller. And so it's not so necessary for us to go personally. We can learn all kinds of things about the world without leaving home. So one ought to use this approach first in order to conserve resources. Learn what you can from books and other sources. And only after doing that, if that isn't enough for one's needs, then maybe one has to travel. But there are less expensive ways to go about it, to try first. Allow us to point out another world. This is called in Pali, Paraloka, the other world. This is the world of the mind, the world inside. One can travel in this world without having to go anywhere, without spending any money. One can, with mindfulness, travel around the world inside and see all kinds of strange and marvelous things, learn all kinds of wonderful and profound things. So we'd like to point out to you the other world or another world, the world inside that one can travel in the mind. To practice anapanasati um, in the third tetrad, which is contemplation of mind, this will allow one to travel in all kinds of other worlds. One will have plenty, all the experience one needs, traveling around the other world. Buddhism specifies that there is no self at all, no permanent center in anything, nothing that does not change. But isn't the element of consciousness, which is found in all living things, that unchangeable center? And though it may not be called the self, as ego is self, it is in its purified form, that found in Nibbana, the essential spirit of all living things. So why we do not contain self, while the self is illusion, spirit is not. We contain spirit. Spirit is real. This is a rather troublesome problem because we come, we run into the great difficulties of language. The meanings of words are very ambiguous, and so this can be quite troublesome. When we use the word self, it is something that does not exist in nature. Self or atta is something that cannot be found in nature. So it might be better to speak about the word soul. Soul is something found in living things. Now, different meanings are given to the word soul. Some people treat it as if it was some eternal, unchanging substance. But our understanding of the word soul 
is just that it's the natural element of consciousness, what in Buddhism is called vinyata datu, that exists in all living things. This element of consciousness is just something natural existing in the, on the mental or spiritual level of living beings. It is natural, it exists, and there's no problem regarding this element of consciousness, at least at the start. But the problem is this element of consciousness whatever you call it, whether you call it soul or spirit or whatever, is very easily attached to as being self. So the problem arises when we take the element of consciousness to be self or atta. So we need to understand what is meant by the word self or atta. The word soul in itself is no problem. But when we cling to the soul as being self, that is the problem. Soul is just mind. It's just the mental side or level of existence. It just refers to the mentality within life. In the Pali language, we just call it life or the chiwa indriya, the faculty of life, or the quality of life that exists within the mind. That's all that's meant by, by, to us, by soul. But as soon as we cling to that soul as being self, as being atta, then there arises a problem. The problem is, what does the word self or atta mean? So far, nobody has been able to explain this word satisfactorily. People have some idea about what self is and then explain it accordingly, but all they're doing is talking about self or explaining self according to their own personal opinions or views. No one has been able to explain self in a universally acceptable way. Nobody is able to show what the self is. All we have are lots of opinions and beliefs about it. So we have the problem of what the word self means. And nobody can explain it because it doesn't really exist. Some people see something and then explain that that is the self, that is the true self. But Buddhism will not accept that anything is self. That thing might be there, but Buddhism can't exist, that it is a self. Now, some relig most religions have chosen something and claim that that is the real self, that is the true self. And then they explain according to that particular view, opinion, or dogma. But Buddhism 
having looked at all those things, can't see that any of them are a re- really a self. Buddhism therefore teaches that all those things are not self. That those things that different groups take to be self are in fact not self. You shouldn't call them a self, you shouldn't take them to be a self. In spite of the fact that many groups in the world are claiming that there is some kind of self and propagating that kind of understanding, and in spite of the fact that the vast majority of people feel they have a self, Buddhism denies that there is anything that really is a self, anything that ought to be called a self. And so Buddhism um, teaches, don't bother taking anything to be a self, don't bother calling anything a self. So there's this problem about what the word self means. People are explaining it according to personal views, but nobody can prove that their view is correct. If somebody is able to explain the word self in a satisfactory way, then maybe this problem will disappear. But so far, they can only satisfy themselves. They can't satisfy others. The word atta, which is the Pali form, or atman, which is the Sanskrit form. Let's look at the meaning of this word. It seems that the original meaning of the word atta means to be or to exist. It means that essence or substance, that thing that truly is, that truly exists. But even this is uncertain. The Some of the language experts argue that the original meaning or the root of atta is atsa, and that the meaning of atsa is to eat. Some people say that the meaning of atsa is to, to be, to exist, but some say it means to eat. And then they explain that atta means that which eats everything else. And then that just confuses the whole issue and makes a mess out of it. But others explain that atta means that which is or that which exists. Now, the way this is usually applied is that atta, I mean applied in common understanding, because before Buddhism existed, all the thinkers and teachers in India said that there was some kind of atta, some kind of self. And it was described in various ways, such as that essence or substance which knows things through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. The spirit, or whatever you want to call it, that experiences the world through the senses. That is sometimes called the atta. Or other times, the atta is the thing that thinks. 
or the thing that knows or the thing that experiences. That substance that experiences or thinks is often explained to be the Atta. Now, Buddhism can't accept that. Buddhism recognizes that there are things, there are things that can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or things that know through these senses, and there's the things that think. But Buddhism can't recognize that any of these things are self. Because the idea of self is there's something that truly exists, that doesn't change. And to think that that thing which knows through the senses doesn't change, that has no meaning in Buddhism. Because if one observes the knowing through the senses, you'll see that it keeps changing. There's not some unchanging knower or experiencer. Or take like some Western thinkers like Descartes, Descartes, who said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Here, Descartes has attached to the thing which thinks. Whatever it is that thinks, he thinks that that is the self, that which truly exists. But Buddhism studies the thinking and sees that, oh, it can think. There are things that think without requiring any self. So there are those who claim that whatever it is that thinks or knows, that is the self. But Buddhism observes that all these things which know, think, or whatever, Whatever it is that does things, it's changing. It isn't some unchanging substance or essence. And so this problem goes on and on. There are all the different explanations of self, but nobody can agree on them. Even the different religions give different understandings, or even in each religion. And then Buddhism doesn't accept any of those explanations of self that those things really exist or truly exist. And so this question of self is a very tangled one, and it's an unending question. As long as people are attaching to self, they'll keep formulating ideas and theories about the self, and this will go on endlessly. But understand that real Buddhists, don't find a self anywhere. They see the things that think and feel and experience, but those things are changing all the time and can't properly be called a self. To understand these different perspectives on self, let's take a look at the final goal. The final goal for those who have self, who hold or believe that there is self, the final goal is for this little self to merge with the big self or the great self, the eternal self. 
such as in the Hindu teachings. Or take Christianity, where there's the belief in some little individual self, and the goal is this to go exist with God in eternity, to exist in eternity. So these are conceptions of some self which will enter eternity, some idea of an eternal self. The other way of looking at this, the Buddhist perspective, is that to begin with, there isn't anything which is self. To be in, there never was anything that rightly could be called a self. And so, in Buddhism, the final goal is eternal voidness, to realize and dwell in the, the eternal voidness, the voidness that is totally free and void of self and anything having to do with self. So, one viewpoint is for this self to go exist as an eternal self with the great self or with God or whatever. The other perspective is that there never was a self, there never will be, and the final goal is to realize and live in that eternal voidness. So the problem for everyone is what to do. There are these two perspectives on self. People in this world can be divided into two camps. There are the groups that believe there is some self, and then there are those who don't see a self anywhere. And so, what are we going to do about this business of self? So let's look at the final goal, or eternity, as it exists right now. Let's, let's take a look at the eternity of eternity, the eternity that we can find right here and now, not the eternity of thoughts and beliefs. Whenever the mind, if right now the mind is void, is free of all thoughts of me and mine, if there's no thinking, no awareness, no sense or feeling of me or mine, of self in the mind, then the mind in that moment dwells in eternity. The mind realizes that eternity as soon as it is void of self. But once the mind starts to think in terms of self again, once it starts to hold on to the sense of self or the concepts of self, then that eternity disappears. This is something immediate, direct, and experienceable by everyone here. When the mind is void of self, eternity appears. When the mind is no longer void, when the mind is caught on self, centered on self, then eternity disappears. In fact, that eternity is here, it's always waiting, but we can only realize it 
experience it or see it for ourselves when the mind is free of self, is void of self, of me and mine. So this thing called self, if to get this self into eternity seems to us to be a very difficult problem, to, to get the self into eternity doesn't seem to fit with experience or with reality. It seems much easier to just leave the self alone and then eternity is right there. All you have to do is drop the self. So what you're going to do with this problem of self or how you're going to get the self into eternity, this is a difficult question. Buddhists don't feel a need to believe anyone else. Buddhists don't accept things on someone else's authority. They investigate things for themselves and only accept what fits with their own spiritual experience. Buddhists observe in their own experience that when the mind is void of self, when there's no thoughts or feelings of self in the mind, then everything is light, Every, the mind is free, there's well-being in peace, there's no problems, there's nothing that could be called dukkha, could be called pain or painful or unpleasant or suffering. But then when the mind isn't void, as soon as there are thoughts of self, as soon as the mind holds on to something as being me, as being self, as this is what I am, immediately the mind becomes heavy, tight. It's no longer free, open, vast, and luminous. It becomes small and heavy. The mind that holds to something as self is burdened. The mind with, that is void of self is free. Examining things in this way that when their mind is void of self, there's no dukkha, but when the mind is holding to something as being self, that there is dukkha, then Buddhists ask, well, in order to be free of dukkha, which is the goal of all religions, all religions are seeking the end of suffering, then Buddhists respond, well, the best way, the easiest way to get free of suffering is just to be free of self. Having observed how when the mind is void of self, there is no dukkha, no pain, nothing unsatisfying, no dukkha, then they see that voidness of self is the way to deal with the problem of dukkha. Now the Hindus see it differently. Their approach to suffering is to take the self, to merge with the eternal self or the supreme self, the paramatman, which means supreme self. And the Christians their approach is for the self 
to do whatever is necessary to go live in the kingdom of God. But the Buddhists see that the best approach is to just be void of self. Now all of you are free to examine things for yourself and to choose as you see fit. So these are your choices. A self that is going to into eternity or eternal voidness of self. It's up to you which you which you choose. By just examining your own experience carefully through practicing mindfulness, you can see for yourself that when the mind is void of I and mind, void of self, that the mind is free, is light, it's cool, it has no problems. But that as soon as the mind is full of self, that things become hot, intense, that things are heavy, that there is dukkha. This is something that you can see for yourself and then draw your own conclusion. Now if we see this, then we can understand how they explain that atta means the eater, the one that eats. Because you can see how atta eats the heart of the one who has atta. Whenever there is atta or self in the mind, in the heart, then that self eats the heart. It eats it. It, it creates dukkha or suffering. So we can see some meaning in this word, this explanation that atta is the one that eats or the eater. Buddhists then see that it's best to be free or void of self. If this self just eats the heart, just creates dukkha, it's better to be totally void, to be free of it. Now those that believe in self, that say there is a self, they deal with the problem a little bit differently, but they've got their way of dealing with this problem. They distinguish between defiled self and undefiled or pure self. And so their approach is to destroy or get rid of all the defiled kinds of self or the sinful self. And when all that defiled self is gone, then one realizes the pure self, the undefiled self. So they see things in terms of false self, which they sometimes call ego, and true self, or which is sometimes called the eternal soul. And that one gets rid of all the false self, and then there is the true self to dwell in eternity. So that's the approach of those who have a self. But as soon as you call it self, Buddhism isn't interested. Buddhism doesn't want to have anything to do with anything called self. Because self in any form, whether you call it true or false, is seen in Buddhism as being an illusion. It's just something that deludes us and tricks us. So Buddhism 
isn't interested in anything that's called self. Instead, Buddhism is interested in voidness of self or voidness from self. So in summary, Atta or self comes from avicca, from ignorance, from <clears throat> not knowing or from wrong knowing. When there is no avicca, none of this ignorance, then there is no self. But as soon as there is ignorance, then there is self. One takes something to see, be self. One sees everything in terms of self. So the Buddhist understanding is that self is the result of ignorance and that when there's no ignorance, there is no self. So that if one can overcome ignorance, if one can see things as they really are, then one sees that there is nothing anywhere that can be rightly taken to be self. Nothing can be correctly, truly regarded as self. Self comes from ignorance. By overcoming ignorance, there is no more self. Now the problem here, another aspect of it we should consider, is that as soon as we're born from our mother's womb, we're ready to take things as self. We're born ignorant. That's not a judgment, it's just the way things go. We're born without wisdom. And so we're ready from the very start to take things as self. So right from the very beginning we begin to see things as self because of this inherent ignorance. So as soon as we're born, we become stupid. Because of this ignorance, we start acting foolishly. From the moment of birth, when, or soon after birth, when some sight strikes the eyes, we think, I see. Some sound strikes the ear and we think, me hears. Some volatile gases enter the nose and we take it to be me smells. There are tastes on the tongue and we think me tastes. Things touch the body and we think me touches or I am touched. And then thoughts, feelings, memories in the mind we take it to be me. This foolishness starts very early, practically from the moment of birth, where whatever contacts the senses is taken to be, or then it's me that experiences it or knows it. So we're tricked or deceived every time there's something strikes the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. We take it all to be I see, I hear, I smell, and so on. This is the first round of deception. We're tricked here. But then we're tricked again. Whatever it is that made contact, we're tricked into thinking that's positive 
or negative. And so we're tricked again that the sight, the smell, the sound, the taste, whatever is positive or is negative. And then the this self gets strong, the self grows even further. So we're deceived twice. And so the the self gets very big. So we're tricked the first time and self arises. So that's the first level of stupidity. And then there's the feelings of positive and negative and we're tricked even more. We become even more stupid and the self becomes intense, much bigger, much stronger. This is something that you don't need anyone to tell you. You can just see it because this is happening to everyone here. This, these two levels of deception are happening right now. Everyone is sitting here with this self, deceived by this illusion of self and the illusion of positive and negative. A very easy example will help to illustrate this. An example from childhood. A child is careless and walking bumps into a chair. After bumping into the chair, it hurts, the leg hurts or something. And the feeling arises, self, myself. And then the mind, the child also projects self on the chair myself and that self hurt me and so the child kicks the chair on the first level the first level of illusion is taking this to be self the pain in the leg or whatever to be self and then the second level of illusion is to think that the chair is a self and then one is so stupid one kicks the chair as if that will do any good. This illustrates very clearly the, these two levels of the illusion of self. Sometimes the mother, father or nurse will come and kick the chair too to show sympathy or solidarity with the child. And so this just makes the kid even more stupid not to mention the adults. So all this helps to um, explain this illusion or the illusions of self. The self is thoroughly stupid. It, it arises out of an illusion and leads and grows into bigger illusions. Soul isn't, the soul is still kind of dumb but it's not quite so stupid. It doesn't know anything and it doesn't go around grabbing things to be self. But this, as soon as self arises, things get really messed up and everything is upside down and thoroughly stupid. If you study this, if you study how the illusions of self arise and understand it, see it, experience it deeply, then one will see through the self and self will no longer exist. One will be 
free of self. There won't be any more self or of self. No me, no mine. And then there won't be any more problems or questions about self. Sometimes we break or destroy our pencil or pen because it doesn't respond to our desires. We want it to do something and it doesn't do it, so we, <clears throat> we break it or throw it away or smash it. This shows how stupid we can be, how broad and extensive this stupidity about self can be, that we take the pen to be a self and try to punish it and get angry at it, hate it. This is the the power of the illusion of self. Remember the short words, please try to remember the words. Wherever there is self, there is a problem. When there is no self whatsoever, there are no problems. There's no hassles, no troubles, no pain, no dukkha. We study Dhamma as the way to be free of pain, to be free of self. We study Dhamma to be free of this illusion of self, to be void of self. And then there's, there are no more problems, there aren't any troubles, nothing is difficult, everything is free. If you experience success in practicing mindfulness with breathing, then you won't have any more problems with self. If you practice correctly until there is deepening insight and experience of anicchata, impermanence, dukkata, the painfulness of impermanent things, anatata, not selfhood, um, tamatitata, the naturalness of things, tamaniyamata, the lawful, the natural lawfulness, itapajayata, dependence and conditionality, sunyata, voidness, datata, thusness, and atamayata, the mind that is untouched by anything positive or negative, then seeing all of these there will not be any more illusions or problems with self and then there are no more problems in life and so from all of this information all of these observations you can study the matter for yourself and then you will know what self is my problem is that over the last few years I've spent much of my free time alone. Nothing wrong with that, yet even though I've tried to capture the positive points of myself during this time, there's this strong feeling lurking in the background that I am not whole or that I am less complete due to not having a meaningful loving relationship in my life family excluded. If it matters, I am not promiscuous. Any suggestions or methods to alleviate this feeling 
or gain a stronger sense of self. We'll not worry about that last phrase since that's been adequately discussed. Um, he definitely won't tell you how to have a stronger sense of self, but first you should ask yourself carefully whether you want or have a lover or a husband or wife for the sake of lessening self or for the sake of enlarging self or increasing self? Does one want a loving relationship in order to build up self or to lessen self? If one is interested in a relationship or a lover, a husband, a wife, in order to lessen self, then one won't have any of these problems. If one is married, has a spouse, has a, a long-term loving relationship, just arrange it so that it's a way, whether a relationship or a family, so that it's a way to lessen self, to get free of self, and then there won't be any problem. When you've got a single self, or atta, then you've only got one set of problems. But when you've got two atas or a pair of selves, then you double the amount of problems. And so when there are two selves, you have to be twice as intelligent, twice as wise, twice as skillful and able to deal with the problems of those two selves. When one has only a single self to deal with, it's easier, still difficult, but it's easier. But if you're going to have a lover or a husband or wife and have two selves to deal with, you better find the intelligence and wisdom to be able to deal with the problems that arise from that. If you look at it from one angle, <clears throat> the married life can be a life where ignorance is doubled. <clears throat> the foolishness of two people is put together and there's just a lot more ignorance. <clears throat> but one can also look at married life as combining the wisdom, the intelligence of wisdom of both in order to solve the problems of self, in order to, order to overcome the problems of life. So it depends on how you look at marriage. What is your purpose and intention in entering a relationship? Do, does one do so through ignorance and just merely doubles the amount of stupidity? Or does one do so with wisdom in order to lessen self and get free of self? And then one can use marriage to, to double the amount of wisdom. The experience and intelligence of both can be put together to help 
deal with the problems of self in order to get free of self. It's how one looks at it. If we live the married life incorrectly, then it doubles stupidity. But if we live the married life correctly, it doubles intelligence and wisdom. So please try to live the married life correctly so that there is more wisdom and less self. <clears throat> this will be the last question. My first exposure to Buddhism was through Tibetan Buddhism. Could you please comment on what you think are the essential differences between t Tibetan and Thai or Suanmok Buddhism? Would reading books on Tibetan Buddhism only confuse what we have learned here? The question we must ask you is, have you realized, have you gotten to the essence, the heart or nucleus of Theravada Buddhism, the Buddhism presented here? Have you recognized, have you found, have you gotten to the essence, the heart of Tibetan Buddhism? If you've gotten to the heart or essence of both, you'll see that they're the same. Now we're talking about the true essence, the genuine essence, not illusions or our own guesses. But if one has gotten to the real essence or heart of Theravada Buddhism, of Mahayana Buddhism, of Vajrayana Buddhism as they teach in Tibet, then one sees that they're all the same. The essence of Buddhism is to see anatta, to realize not-self, to realize the fact that life is not-self, to see the not-selfness of life, the selflessness of life. This is the heart of all forms of Buddhism, whether Thai Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism, Burmese Buddhism, Vietnamese Buddhism, um, Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Mongolian, Western Buddhism, whatever kind of Buddhism is, the heart, the essence is just this one thing, to realize the selflessness, the anatta of life. All the schools of Buddhism teach this. This is the only true or genuine heart of Buddhism. Now, you can get confused if you take superficial matters, some of the outer or um, external things, such as the ceremonies or the language used or the way the monks dress or shave their heads or the rules they follow. If you take the language or the specific meditation techniques or any of the externals, then this can lead to confusion, discrimination, and even a lot of arguing, who's right, who's better, and all that kind of rubbish. But if one gets to the heart of it, then you, one sees that all schools, all forms of Buddhism are the same. They teach that life is not self. This is usually taught in the form that the five 
heaps, the five khandas, or in Sanskrit skandhas, are not self. The body aggregate, the feeling aggregate, the perceptions aggregate, the thoughts aggregate, and the consciousness aggregate. Each of these are not self. Altogether, they're not self. Outside of them, there is nothing which is self. Seeing thoroughly that life, or these five khandas, these five subsystems of life, are not self, this is the heart of all of Buddhism. Once one recognizes, realizes this essence of Buddhism, then there won't be any confusion. Now, we have to accept the necessity that new ceremonies, new rituals, new practices, new teachings and explanations will have to be created. There will always be a need for more of these in order to serve the needs of people of, we could say, weak-minded people um, or people who aren't very intelligent, people without much wisdom. In order to help them, there will always be a need to make, think up new ceremonies and so on. And then there will always be a need, the people who have already gone very far in a certain direction, in a certain line of study, in order to correct the misunderstandings involved with that, it will be necessary to adapt new teachings to that situation. So this need will always exist. And so it's inevitable that there will be constantly arising new ceremonies, new methods, new teachings and explanations. For example, if you look at some of the great Mahayana suttas, which are all very, very long, the Theravada sutras or discourses are rather short. But all the famous Mahayana ones, almost all, are very long. In the beginning, they begin with lots of devotional and magical kind of stuff to get the attention of people who aren't very wise. And then to slowly raise their level of understanding. And then there's a lot of philosophical stuff to deal with people who've gotten off the track into philosophical speculations about all kinds of different things. And so these very large Mahayana sutras are having to deal with these different needs. But in the end, the purpose is to draw all of that to the essence of Buddhism. Buddhism. And all the real great Mahayana sutras end with the fact that the five khandas are not self, with the fact of the voidness of the five khandas, that life is not self. All of the, so the different techniques and methods will keep varying according to the needs, but the essence is always the not-selfness of life. Now, to help certain people, people who are really spiritually immature, then, then it gets even more difficult. And so there was, there's the need for the so-called pure land or paradise schools. 
to give people some kind of heaven or paradise to look for in the next life. This kind of, it's called Sukhawati, this approach is also necessary. We need to recognize that this is the way things are in order to help people of different levels of intelligence from different backgrounds. But we shouldn't get distracted or confused by that. We should see that the heart, the essence of every school of Buddhism, every sect and every subsect is that the five khandhas are not self. Life is not self. And then certain methods are just techniques to stimulate the wisdom to leap out quickly. There are certain, certain approaches which are solely designed to kind of um, spark a sudden leap of wisdom. For example, Zen has some of these. So there are approaches that emphasize this attempt to kind of front scare or spark wisdom suddenly. We'd like to thank you and thank you and thank you for giving us some, so many good questions to respond to, to discuss in order to make more understanding of Dhamma. So enough time has passed that we must now close. Thank you.